Hello and welcome to Madison's Notes, the official podcast of Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. I'm your host, Annika Nordquist. Today, we're going to have a chat about beauty. What is it? What is it good for? And why do we need it in our daily lives? To chat about this, I have here Margarita Mooney Clayton. Margarita actually got her master's and PhD here at Princeton and is a sociologist by training, although today we're going to be talking a lot more about philosophy. She is the author of a recent book, The Wounds of Beauty, which is a really lovely collection of interviews uh, with various artists or philosophers talking about what beauty is and why it's important. Um, And she also has an upcoming conference this April called Art, the Sacred, and the Common Good, Renewing Culture Through Beauty, Education, and Worship. And with no further ado, I hope you enjoy. Margarita, welcome to the show. It's really lovely to have you. Great to be here, Annika. Kicking this off, I'm going to put on my, like, friendly neighborhood Calvinist hat here. I come from, like, a more or less an iconic sensibility, um, by which I really mean that I haven't discussed so much beauty in, like, a very present physical sense, uh, which is what informs kind of your book coming from the Catholic tradition. So to kick us off here, uh, can you defend for me uh, the purpose of treating beauty as like an academic discipline as opposed to something that's more of a personal experience? That's a great question, Annika. So, you know, keep in mind that I'm a Roman Catholic, but who teaches at a Reformed Presbyterian institution, Princeton Theological Seminary. And so in discussions of beauty, not just there, but with young people, the response I get is, well, wait, beauty is something subjective. Right. It's, it's it's personal. And yet it's also very important to a good life. So what I try to remind people is that this kind of intuitive response that beauty is personal mm. and subjective does come out of a worldview that the human good is only spiritual, right. not material. But I think people who are call themselves Christian, but also anybody who affirms the goodness of creation has to acknowledge that there is a form to the good. And that form to the good is what we call beauty. Mm. So I very clearly in the book, The Wounds of Beauty, discuss this with the poet Dana Joya, with the philosopher and poet James Matthew Wilson, the idea that beauty is an is an embodied experience, right? And so if beauty is an embodied experience, it's a perception of the good through a form that that comes to us. I try to help people understand that their sense that there's something subjective about beauty because there's something personal about beauty is that they're pointing to the personal response to beauty. Mm. But what I want to start from is what are the forms that produce that personal response? And can we say that there's any commonality to the forms that produce the personal response that affirms the goodness of creation? Mm, That was a very platonic answer. Um, (laughs) I mean, one thing that's always kind of confused me a little bit about this is when you get kind of philosophers like Plato who talk about forms of beauty and and religious thinkers who talk about God as truth, God as beauty. Um, I mean, talking about God or the divine as something beautiful is this very, like you said, non-physical kind of sense of the word beauty. Like God doesn't 
like look like anything. You know, when you create art, it's a it's a very physical thing. So I guess how do you talk about that kind of distinction? Because when I hear those two concepts, it's easy for me to think of them as like two separate things. Like a girl can be beautiful and God can be beautiful. But to me, those mm. seem like you're using the word in a different sense. Well, absolutely. I think that what you just said points to the common um, sense use of beauty as something that's attractive, like a beautiful woman, a woman right. we would put on a magazine, right? But what I discussed in the book and what I discussed recently in my uh, webinar with the iconographer, I, you know, Aidan Hart, and what Aquinas says in his philosophy of beauty is that beauty reveals kind of wholeness, this integritas. Right. Therefore, beauty can actually begin with something that kind of might appear grotesque on the surface. And in fact, Aidan Hart, the iconographer, explained in his webinar with mm. me that the beauty of icons always contains an imperfection. Mm. So the kind of magazine cover that that claims perfection in human form actually doesn't really satisfy human beings because it feels untrue mm. because no person is perfect. Right. Mm. No human form is actually perfect, but rather the perfection of beauty is in that it reveals that it points to something. Right. So beauty is supposed to reveal the harmony of the world and it's supposed to radiate something. But the kind of beauty I'm talking about really can only be understood if you move past the Greeks and into mm. the medievals and the concept of, the, of beauty as a transcendental property of being. Yeah, I was going to follow up right away and ask about the Greeks because, I mean, so much, or at least in my understanding of, of Greek art, is that it is chasing this kind of super hyper-idealized I mean, I would say unrealistic, um, you know, picture of the human form, certainly in Greek statuary. So how do you, is your claim then that Greek statuary is just less beautiful than medieval art because medieval art has that sensibility? Well, I'm not claiming to be an expert on ancient Greek statues. What I'm pointing out here is that the concept of God becoming man, which is the centrality of the Christian claim, right, right is that this, uh, this, this beauty that the Greeks were longing for has taken on a human form. Right. But that beautiful form also died and was resurrected. Right. right. So the Christian conception of beauty is part of this understanding of God coming into the world and redeeming the world. Mm. Right. So that's, I think, a very different understanding and it's one that that resonates not just with people of Christian faith but, but people who have a view of human persons in the in the created world as being in need of redemption and being imperfect. Well, I think it resonates with anyone who's, you know, taken a photograph. There's just like it takes so much more effort to compose something beautiful when you're capable of capturing like a perfect likeness, you know. Um I want to talk a little bit about the evolution of the concept of beauty kind of from the ancient world to the modern world, uh, because as you kind of have pointed out, it seems like Christianity's relationship with beauty is really very different uh, from the relationship that preceded it. Um, and in some ways, it seems as though it has been kind of complicated, like at certain points in history. Um, I think I know you and I have discussed that I'm interested in polyphonic music. 
Um, but the initial transition from Gregorian chant to polyphonic music actually was kind of controversial at the time. And there are most kind of developments in music in the West, I think, since have kind of had the same hesitations. People think that beauty is tied to the sexual. And so if you move past whatever it was before, it's it's a sort of more sexual experience. Um, talk to me a little bit about um, how Christianity changed our relationship with beauty. Um, and do you agree that that relationship can be tense? Oh, absolutely. I think the example that you just gave about debates about music and the place mm-hmm. of music in the life of faith or in worship gets to this longstanding concern that beauty can distract us from the yeah. good or that beauty can tempt us with its pleasures away from the good, right? So I think that to really, that's why you need, I think, the disciplines of philosophy, but also the sort of living tradition of artists and musicians grappling with these questions in the forms of art to think this through, because it's correct that certain forms which we create can distract us from the good. But to be able to make that claim, you have to understand something about the human person. And perhaps one way to kind of think this through is just to give an example most people can resonate with. Social media, right? Yeah. We have images. We have sounds. We have sound bites. Well, the people creating those images and creating those sounds and those little, they're doing it with the purpose of moving you to do something in the immediate, to click mm-hmm. on another image, to click a like, to click a buy, right? So those sounds and visions are being manipulated to direct you to some kind of action that becomes sort of like a trap and gets you to just keep buying more of whatever it is that it's giving you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So when people express this concern about music that you said, right, um, even going back, right, there are some uh, traditions within Christianity that have no musical instruments, only human voice and only plain chant. Right. right? And then you get instruments and then you get polyphonic music. And what's the concern? The concern becomes that the beauty of the musical instruments or the human voices, that that becomes the end and not the act of worship to which the beauty is directed. Um, So I think the way that I see it is that the fine arts that you're talking about, the kind of polyphonic music, it is oftentimes beyond a lot of people's ability to do it. Whereas plain chant is practiced by the Jewish tradition, that's practiced by the Islamic tradition, the Gregorian chant, simple plain chant. It's just a form of speaking, really, with a little Mm -hmm. bit of tone to it. And so I think that when it comes to worship, we want to ensure that the forms of music are actually collective, that they're not performative, because worship is not supposed to be an aesthetic performance. Um, But when, and here I would follow kind of, Cardinal Ratzinger, Pope Benedict XVI, who was himself a singer. His brother was a choir director, also a priest. He's written extensively about music. Polyphonic music, when done properly, can aid worship because it's like angelic singing, right? right? There's still a quality of it. That's, it's, it's beautiful music, but there's a quality of the music that is unfinished, that's incomplete, and Definitely. it leaves this sense of resonance. Yeah. And it would take a whole podcast on music theory yeah. <laughs> to explain that, but I'll just say that the feeling I have when I 
left a rock concert in Hyde Park in London with Blondie and Phil Collins. Right. It was a very different feeling yeah. than when I left the Brompton Oratory in London with a polyphonic chant choir. And what that polyphonic chant choir is doing is it's puncturing the veil between heaven and earth. The word sing appears in the Bible. I believe that in heaven there is music. And as C.S. Lewis famously said, in hell there's neither silence nor fine music. Mm. Yeah, I guess to to push on it a little, though, I think that the concern with some of that is that and it's sort of hard to refute looking at music history that kind of the history of music music becomes more and more sexual as time goes on um kind of from chant to more melodic music to rock and roll to i mean hip hop today which is it feels as though it can't get any more extreme but i'm afraid to say that because it always can um but I guess, like, how would you respond to that view of, like, the history of, of music? Hmm. Well, I mean, again, perhaps in the church we've heard more, people in general have heard more about iconoclasm, the destruction of images yeah. and statues, right? Um, this happened by, you know, Calvin or Zwingli, you know, taking down statues, images. Mm. No, no, we need to approach God through a kind of rational, cognitive, spiritual, hey, that's all good, right? Mm-hmm. But it does neglect the senses. right? Similarly, with music, if we begin to say, well, if we do this, then we're going to do this and we're going to do that. Let's just, why not just go back to nothing, right? So I do think the questions I raise with my students is we have to have some principles that guide which mm-hmm. music and why, because otherwise we become iconoclastic about right. Music. Because right. in theory, any why not just get rid of music entirely, right? right? And have no music. Um, well, because we're embodied human beings, because there's something to the tones and polyphonic chant, I think this is why I would defend it. I think mm-hmm. there's a sense of the of the harmony, of the polyphony that is itself revealing to us something about the nature of God. Um, and I don't make that claim about rock music. Right. Now, I've spoken to people and people will tell me, well, you should go to a music festival and people are having all kinds of spiritual experiences. And, <laughs> and I say, well, what kind of God are they encountering? And certainly, look, a lot of people listening may very well go to churches that essentially play yeah. rock music. Yeah, and yeah. my students, when they read this or hear this, they don't like it because their churches essentially play rock music. Yeah. And so my question to them then becomes, OK, if rock music is allowed, why not? you know, any form of music. And as one student said, you know, he's like, look, folks, I used to be an atheist and I agree with you that the spirit is moving in any kind of music. The question is, is it the Holy Spirit? Because I can tell you as an atheist, there were forms of music that got me to do things the Holy Spirit wouldn't want me to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So music does move us. So what I try to tell people is, all right, you don't agree with my answer about what form of music belongs in worship. What are the principles that would help you discuss with somebody who disagrees with you and wants Mm. to introduce introduce a form of music. Is it just that your taste is not for hip-hop music and his is for rock? I mean, is it all a matter of taste? Because if it's all a matter of personal preference, then there's no principle at all. And anybody who knows music would probably be better off arguing that there's some component of the form of the music that makes it beautiful. Right. 
Right, right. Otherwise, it's just me imposing my taste on you. Mm. And that's not really what church is supposed to be. <laughs> gotcha. Well, moving back a little bit, I guess, because there are still a lot of questions that I want to ask about kind of the history of how we view beauty. Um, I think uh, the way that we talk about art today, and you talk about this in a really interesting way in your book, um, it comes largely from the Romantic period. Um, and I'm curious if you could talk uh, a little more about that, um, about how it is that, you know, we talked, we've talked a little bit about the transition from pre-Christian to post-Christian conceptions of beauty. When we hit the Romantic period, what changes? Well, perhaps one place to look for this in my book, The Wounds of Beauty, is the chapter with uh, poet and philosopher James Matthew Wilson. Yeah. And also, I believe it's in the chapter with Dana Joya, the yeah. former head of the National Endowment of the Arts and former poet laureate of California. The Romantic movement, I think, was part of a broader kind of humanistic movement that wanted to elevate yeah. human emotion. And James Matthew Wilson in the book with me does just, just a brilliant job of saying that the confusion of Romanticism is that of course, there's something beautiful in human forms and human emotions. But when we begin to equate human emotion itself as the good, as opposed to a response to something that's good, then it becomes romantic, as the word says, because it's just kind of saying that the good is the feeling of good itself. Right. Right. And that becomes confusing. Yeah. Very quickly. Because people can find pleasure or good positive emotion in actions which most of us would agree are objectively wrong and immoral. Mm -hmm. um, and so what James Matthew Wilson is trying to remind people is that it's really confusing when you just call a good a feeling, right? Mm. And that what the romantics try to do ultimately becomes humanistic, but really idealistic about mm. the human person. And in fact, and this is why I love the chapter with James Matthew Wilson, and I also love to read authors like Augusto Del Noche or Roger Scruton, with this equation of the good with a form of emotion actually gives rise to is not more good in art and beauty, but a kind of postmodern transgressive quality. Mm to so much good that actually wants to say, no, human life isn't this beautiful, you know, smiley, right. feeling good. You know, we need to portray, you know, darkness and um, suffering. And again, as I've said earlier, you know, Christian art understands the important role of of darkness in human life, but that darkness is thought of as, as part of human fallenness that can be redeemed. Mm. But in postmodern forms of art and architecture, the darkness is reality. So it becomes nihilistic. A lot of postmodern art ultimately is saying there is no order and there is no meaning and there is no beauty. It just things just are. Life just is. And there's no intrinsic beauty or meaning or purpose at all. Do you think that in order to be beautiful, something has to be good? Because I guess 
I mean, the, the title of your book is The Wounds of Beauty. I think it would be hard to make the case that, you know, being wounded is a good thing. And a lot of us appreciate art that depicts, you know, real suffering and things like that. Mm. So what, what is that relationship? Well, I picked the title The Wounds of Beauty for my book for two reasons. One, because I did want to point out, as you have just said, that suffering, whether that's involuntary suffering or voluntary sacrifices like the fasting at Lent or the, you know, holding your tongue when you're feeling impatient with someone, the practice of virtue, that those things which we can find humanly difficult mm-hmm. lead us to the good. Um, and that simply is the concept of a virtue, right? That we are given, I believe human nature is created as good, but we're also fallen. We're in need of redemption and we have to cooperate with God to practice the good. But the other part, it's, and so then people often say, well, then what you're saying with the wounds of beauty is that beauty consoles us in our suffering, right? And that when we're going through a hard time or something bad happens, we can look at a beautiful sunset and still have hope. Yes, I would say that that's, I would agree with that statement. But I chose the title, The Wounds of Beauty, not only to say that beauty consoles us in our suffering, but as I was describing earlier with music, that a true experience of beauty doesn't satisfy us, doesn't mm. satisfy us. It pierces us mm. and it opens us up to a deeper level of reality and leaves us desiring more of that good. So that's the kind of dual meaning of the wounds of beauty, that yes, beauty consoles us in our suffering, but going to a beautiful poly- polyphonic concert leaves you wounded because you want yeah. more of that. You Your desire for that good has increased. Yeah. Cir- and it can never be fully fulfilled mm. by the material form. Yeah. Circling back to the romantics kind of element of this, um, one really interesting uh, element of it that I haven't thought about before um, is this idea of whether or not art is self-expression. Um, as, and as such a great aficionado of medieval art, um, you know and, and discuss that it, there was a period in history where art was anonymous. Um, but when you talk about teaching kids to do art or write poetry in classrooms today, it's discussed, I mean, basically purely as a form of self-expression. Um, would you say that self-expression is an important element of art? Undoubtedly, self-expression is important in art. I would say that's not all there is to it. Right. So the other thing that I did in The Wounds of Beauty and I continue to do through Scala Foundation in our webinars and conferences is actually speak to artists whose art I admire and Mm -hmm. talk to them about the vocation of being an artist, Mm -hmm. right? So the artists who I talk to in The Wounds of Beauty, uh, David Clayton, who's a painter, the two poets whom I've mentioned, James Matthew Wilson, and Dana Joya, mm-hmm. also Sister Noella Marcelino, who has a PhD in microbiology, and she's famous for making artisanal cheese. So there's a documentary about her called The Cheese Nun, right? Um, they're all creators of something beauty. And what they would tell you, Sister Noella says this about the science of making cheese, and David Clayton says it about um, making sacred art. James Matthew Wilson, Dana Joya say it about poetry, that, of course, 
the artist is present in the work, but or in the science of Sister Noella, but that they're also very self-consciously learning from tradition. Hmm. So the idea that if something is self-expression, then it must transgress the tradition, it doesn't doesn't follow, hmm. right? Self-expression can be in line with a tradition. Hmm. And so um, what I've learned from listening to artists who see themselves as, who see their calling as artists to co-create something, they're doing that with a keen awareness of past, present, and future. That what they're creating in the present has to bear some resemblance to what's come before and also be open to a future that has yet to come. So I think if you were teaching art, which is the example that you gave, teaching art to children, we do more than give them a piece of paper and a pen and tell them to go draw. Or even if you did that, what would they do? They might look out the window and try to draw what they see in nature. Hmm. They might see a painting and try to copy something, right? So there's nothing wrong with copying in art. Hmm. Um, and if you've ever tried to do that, you never make an exact copy anyway, yeah. right? Yeah. The color is always varied a little bit. The lines are a little bit varied. And then maybe in the end you put a little, you know, swiggle on it or something. So um, I think what I'm trying to say is that if you want to teach art, right, the whole emphasis in advanced schools of fine art and architecture has been on expression and innovation. And there's actually not a lot of teaching the classical principles yeah. of drawing and the mathematics of beauty and architectural forms. And so at least what I see is then if art is thought of as self-expression when we're dealing with young children, well, then why not with public forms of art? And then if art is nothing but self-expression, how do you keep a campus like Princeton University having buildings that speak to each other as a coherent right. whole? What you end up with is one innovative building next to another innovative building next to another innovative building, none of which have similar architectural principles and just don't feel like they go together as a whole. Yeah. I mean, I think our culture tells everyone that they're the leader. And in fact, in order to make kind of an organization work, you need leaders and followers. And that's part of the issue with some of this artistic stuff is that people understand that all of the greats were in some way transgressive or innovative. And so they think that's, you know, that's the priority. That's what you have to do. Um, I don't know. Would you agree with that? <laughs> I, would have, I wouldn't say that all the greats were transgressive. I mm. mean, someone who was innovative is Andrea Palladio. Was he transgressive? I don't know. You yeah. know, he was innovative. He was also innovative because he wrote down all of the architectural forms that he did, which people didn't used to do. Mm. Right. He wrote down all the mathematical mm. um basically all the engineering behind his buildings. So they ended up being copied a lot. Um, the spaces of Monticello was Palladian. Uh, Jefferson was very interested in Andrea Palladio. He might have, you know, so he was developing a tradition, but I don't think he would have called himself transgressive. Transgressive, mm, interesting. Transgressive I think, is anti, I think of yeah. that term as kind of anti-tradition and anti-purpose. Yeah. You know, yeah, the yeah. purpose is to shock yeah. I do think, though, that, I mean, because I, I take what you're saying about the nature of good art super seriously, but it's hard to 
get around uh, the extent to which in most art, including, I think, even great art that's been creative, ego, you know, is really present. Um, And I think a lot of people, their critique of art um, is that it, it, you know, leans toward hedonism and and egoism. Um, So how do you, I mean, I guess, how do you get around that? But also, how do you kind of deal with its presence? Because I think so much, I mean, great painting, for instance, um, it'd be hard to make the case that part of the reason people enjoy looking at it is that it's not a little bit hedonistic. Well, I mean, again, I think when we begin to talk about the ego and self-expression, you know, in in and of themselves, these things aren't bad, but I guess I'm just looking for the ordering principle that's going to elevate that towards the good. Because why would we assume that if the ego is in it or self-expression is in it, that it's good as opposed to bad, right? Right. That's, again, going back to James Matthew Wilson's point. You don't equate whatever is from the self as, as good. Right. Right, right. Because then there's no, I mean, then there's no concept of human fallenness. Then there's no concept of the common good. Then just whatever I create, I can impose it upon you. Um, There's no principles. So what Mm. I'm saying is that the tradition of beauty that I'm speaking from holds that the natural world has Mm. principles of order and harmony and claritas. And those principles can be seen in visual form and heard in musical form in a way that they appeal cross-culturally, that they appeal universally. Mm. That doesn't mean that there's no variation, that there's no diversity, that there's no creativity. Right. But it's the creativity is beginning with a form and sort of leading back to it. And why is that so hard for people Mm. to think about? today you know why is that 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 idea that beauty is more than just individualistic self-expression creativity that beauty has a basis in mathematics that beauty reveals the goodness of creation that beauty shows us something about the mind of god look i don't think it's an accident that people have not been exposed to these ideas. In fact, as I began to mention, mm. you know, postmodernism gives way to nihilism and the manipulation of music and art and architecture to convey meaninglessness has been intentional. Mm. So what I told students at the end of my class recently, I was like, you may not agree with what I have said Mm. about the principles of beauty. But if you don't remember anything else, remember that the 20th century has been marked by philosophical movements that deny meaning and purpose in creation and Mm. that there have been artistic movements that have tried to embody that meaninglessness in form. And if you think as a human being, you are not affected by the forms being Mm. created and put out in the world, then I think you have the wrong understanding of the human person. Hmm. I mean, one of the things that you kind of allude to in your book that relates to that, but I'd like to draw in a little bit more detail, uh, is the link between beauty and mental health, um, which I know as a sociologist is something that you thought a lot about. 
um, because it seems to me that postmodernism expresses kind of, you know, an internal nihilism and internal unhappiness. Um, what do you think is the link between beauty and mental health? Do you think that the fact that our art has taken such a nihilistic turn um, is feeding into the mental health crisis happening right now? The causes of the mental health crisis are are very complex. Yeah. And I would not want to reduce that complexity to any one single cause. Yeah. That said, I became interested in beauty precisely because during my work interviewing young adults all across the United States who had suffered mm. chronic mental illness or sexual abuse or from drug addiction themselves or had lost a loved one to heroin, mm. there was a tremendous desire to believe that life was still worth living and that there's a possibility of redemption, that there's hope for humanity despite all of our sufferings. And nihilism tells you that there is really no way out. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. And so I do think that this kind of very basic existential question, is it good that I exist, mm. is part of the mental health crisis. And when young people are asking that question, it's been a learning curve for me to walk with them through that dark place about why does it actually matter that I am here? Yeah. And I have found that beautiful walks in nature, the beautiful sounds of harmonious music, mm. beautiful architecture, beautiful art, it arrests your attention. Mm. And it grasps you in a totality. And again, as Aidan Hart put so beautifully in my recent webinar with him, pulls you in a certain direction. And it breaks the ego, mm. right? Yeah. It breaks the ego. And it tells us, this true beauty that I'm talking about, tells us that we're not alienated mm. from the world. It may very well be that we have to reform our lives, that we have to make different choices not to abuse drugs. It may very well be that we need to go to psychological counseling mm. um, to deal with mental health issues. Uh, all of those treatments are valuable. It depends on the person. But the fundamental affirmation of the yeah. goodness of creation cannot come from a pill and it cannot come from a drug. Yeah. And there are a lot of people who are questioning the basic goodness of creation. So I have become interested and have dedicated the last, you know, five to six years of my life reading about beauty and trying to incorporate it in my research and in my teaching, because I do think we live in a culture, whether you have mm. mental illness or not, we live in a culture where people are starving for yeah. beauty. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things that you mentioned in your book, and I'm forgetting which interview, but one of the people that you interviewed talked about, you know, art as bearing a philosophical load um, in a society which doesn't talk about philosophy in a compelling way uh, or value it maybe as much as it should. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about that relationship, I guess, both how it was and what it's become? 
Well, one of the people I interview in the book is George Harn, who got his Ph.D. in music right here at Princeton University. He's actually the only person I interviewed in this book, as well as my earlier book, The Love of Learning, Seven Dialogues on the Liberal Arts. And George describes how, as a public school kid in Florida, when he was eight years old, perhaps, I think it was, they took him to a classical music concert, and and Mm. he was transformed. Mm. And... And he came and he studied music at Princeton University. And he didn't actually make the connection between music and spirituality until he was well into his adulthood. He's Mm -hmm. now actually at University of St. Thomas in Houston leading a program that's trying to bring kind of um, liberal arts and beauty and an integrated vision of beauty and truth and goodness by providing a master's of fine arts, right? There's a lot of philosophy and aesthetics of beauty, but what they're trying to do at the University of St. Thomas in Houston is find the next generation of young writers producing these forms of beauty. So what George and I talk about in the book is that, yeah, we are living in a culture in a time when these forms of beauty are not, there's not a lot of people creating these forms of beauty that I'm yeah. talking about in yeah. music, poetry, and art. But they are out there. Mm. And so what I'm hoping to do, the broader vision of what I'm trying to do with Scala Foundation and the nonprofit I started is help bring beauty back into education and into our common life and into worship. And um, you can find out about my conference on the Scala Foundation website. It's April 21st and 22nd, 2023, right here on the campus of Princeton Theological Seminary. It's open to the public. It's free. It'll be live streamed as well. In addition to artists and scholars, we'll have educators from the Great Hearts Classical Academies will be there. Teachers will be there. Clergy members. We're going to have Anna Bond, who is the co-founder of Rifle Paper Company. (laughs) She is a graphic artist with a commercial with a commercially successful business. And she wanted to come speak at the conference because she says, you know, people tell me all the time they buy my products because it makes them happy. Mm. And we want more cultural entrepreneurs, you know, artists of her talent level creating the everyday objects of beauty for our house. Look, I'm not trying to say that in order to enjoy the beauty we're talking about, you have to tomorrow go out and buy an expensive piece of art or go to an expensive classical music conference. But Think about one simple object of beauty that you can put in your office space or that you can Mm. put in your dining space. Maybe you light a candle at dinner, a simple wax candle, you know. Mm. Um, Think about anything you can do that enhances the embodied sensory nature of human life without overwhelming it. I'm not saying like 20 smelly candles from every, you know, candle shop in town, Mm. but a simple light touch of the embodied sensual nature of being human really brings a kind of a kind of hope that mm. people are desperately looking for right now. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about um, how the decline of religion has affected um, our views on art and beauty and kind of the quality and type of art and beauty uh, that we encounter? Look, most people today have an implicit, I want to say most, a lot of people have an implicitly disenchanted mm-hmm. worldview. Yeah. This philosophy of beauty that I was talking about um, actually was this kind of philosophy of beauty that's nihilistic was actually at the heart of what now lots of people have heard about, which is critical theory. Right, right, right. I was going to ask right. about that as well. And, you know, critical theory 
try to take on these ideas that the universe is order and harmony and consonance and posit that, no, the basis of reality is contradiction, Mm. right? And so in critical theory, the purpose of truth-seeking is to uncover Mm. what's repressing something or what's holding something back. Now, I would say certainly that's, that's part of knowing the truth is to look deeply at things and see if there's a problem. But when you posit that the basis of reality is contradiction right. and that every time you solve a contradiction, you discover a new contradiction that needs <laughs> to be resolved, then you're basically – and then when you actually make the claim, as critical theory does, that – Contradictions are the engine of history. Mm. What are you saying? Then love is not the engine of history. Right. But something negative. Right, right, right. And so when it's so this kind of critical theory, broadly speaking, is a contradictory, nihilistic, mm. depressing worldview. What People who've written about this would be people like Roger Scruton. He writes about the incoherence of so many modern academic fields of the humanities. Um, Max Weber talked about the kind of disenchanted worldview that most people held. Uh, And I think what also the decline of religion, not just in terms of like people in the pews, but the decline of the sense of God being present Mm. in the world. Right. Um, But also transcendent, also beyond, also also different from. Mm. So the humanist movement kind of said, yeah, God is in the world like God is the world. You know, the power of God is human power. You know, take responsibility. That's why people sometimes, I think, get on board with, you know, a Nietzschean or a kind of something coming out of the Hegelian absolute spirit. Like, yeah, there is a kind of godlike power, but we can grasp it and we can bring it down to ourselves. Right. 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 And so it's that kind of, you know, God becomes an ubermenschen. God becomes a superman. Right. Look. That worldview, I do think, leads to madness because all you're ever doing is squashing other people and trying to out-compete other people. So what I think the decline of religion has done, and it's, it's, it's left a void mm. that has been filled by these theories that give people I, look I, this is what you do when you're an academic and you have a free saturday you read <laughs> alistair mcintyre 1954 marxism and christianity yeah it's a phenomenal book and he wrote it when he was in his 20s if you don't know who alistair mcintyre is he's written several books since then after virtue a study of moral theory whose justice which rationality brilliant moral philosopher and what he says is that the entire enlightenment project was to establish universal reason apart from religious truth Mm. or any kind of tradition. Yeah. Simply using human reason. And the conclusion of the Enlightenment project was essentially really well-trained academic philosophers, all of whom reached different conclusions about what the truth is. Mm. And they're really good at explaining the reasoning that got them there, but they cannot reach agreement on first principles. Hmm. So the whole claim of the Enlightenment that we can use our reason to agree on first principles that will get us to the truth has resulted in people who are really good at taking different principles and arguing for their truth. Where then what he says stepped in to fill that void was 
Marxism. Mm. Because Marxism, he says, is like a secularized version of Christianity. It presents a worldview. It presents a kind of redemption. It's a theory of history. It's a theory of the motion of history. But the motion of history he takes, meaning Marx, takes from Hegel. Hmm. The motion of history is conflict. Right. And then Marx turns that into material conflict. So the engine of history, I'm sure many of you have heard, is class conflict. Right. Now, again, what people find so appealing about that is that it's a theory of everything Mm. because it's a theory of history. So we have on the one hand people arguing their versions of the truth over here and my version of the truth over there and let's get to first principles. And then you have this onslaught of like, no, 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 no. History is going in this direction. Mm. And, you know, get on board with my side, right? So that's what's happened with the decline of religion is you have the ascent of a secular form of religion that I would call Marxist-inspired critical theory applied to economics, also to gender, Mm. and to art. That's what's happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I want to harp back a little bit on, you know, you talked about kind of the Enlightenment project of uh, proving things in in order to attain knowledge. And you have a recent article in Comet Magazine where you discuss kind of in a similar vein with our education system and the views of Dewey, who was super influential on our education system. And you point out something that I hadn't really, you know, thought to question before, uh, which is that he believed that knowledge can only be really acquired through scientific experiment, sort of an empiricist kind of opinion. Um, And I want to ask you about that, but also about one of the thinkers who you bring up a lot in your book and in your writing in general is Jacques Mauritain. Um, to me, it seemed like those two views of knowledge, his and Dewey's, were kind of opposite. Can, can you talk to me a little bit about that, about that distinction? So I will credit uh, Robert P. George, Robbie George, the you know, director of the James Madison <laughs> Our beloved Program, Robbie founder, George. Yes, for pointing out to me in our discussion that's published in my earlier book, The Love of Learning, yeah. the dangerous effects of John Dewey on yeah. public policy. Yeah, yeah. And it was two people in that book, The Love of Learning, Robert George and Timothy O'Malley of Notre Dame, who mm. both got me to read and engage more deeply with Dewey. So... I bring up Dewey in my article in Comment Magazine, right? Why choose mystery over ideology? Because nobody more than John Dewey has been influential in education policy. No no philosopher, I right. would say, right, right. has been more influential. Education is the primary realm in which I work. And Dewey makes, in in his lesser known works, which are actually his works on religion, he tries to establish an anti-metaphysical understanding of truth. Hmm. So there is no essence in being. What we know, we know through empirical senses. Not that our senses let us see the essence of things, that the sensory, the empirical is the truth. I mean, and this sounds like, well, what's what's wrong with that? I mean, what Dewey would say, what people defend Dewey would say, well, but if something is true in essence, we can see it working in the world. So why do we need to know its essence? Well, because then Dewey essentially collapses the material world in and on in and of itself. There's nothing other mm. to the human person than something material. So he wants to say, no, 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 but we have emotions and, you know, we might even have a soul, but that's not how we access the truth. We only access the truth through logical, deductive reasoning, scientific experimentation, tinkering. Right. So what Dewey leads to is really 
the the way to access truth is only through the scientific method, right. which is inherently about manipulating the world and right. testing things. So the problem with that is that there's no space for contemplative truth. Mm. There's no space for seeing in a sunset not just, you know, particles moving like that, but the splendor of the truth, which is what calling beauty a transcendental means, that mm. the material world has a symbolic meaning that points to something beyond it. And for Dewey, oh, that's a nice idea. Oh, those might be nice feelings. Mm. But it's just not true. What's true is what we can tinker Right. What we can tinker with, what we can put in our hands and put under a microscope and make something new out of. So what I say then is that it's really hard to argue for moral truth in mm. from Dewey. Yeah. 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 So it and so that's why this kind of reduced form of reason that's nothing more than the scientific experiment really cannot uphold strong or any kind of moral claims about what's good. So, again, the kinds of things I'm interested in, the suffering, the vulnerable, you know, why should we care about disabled children? Well, if you haven't heard, the progressive movement, which Drew is a part of, didn't Right. Interesting. Care. Interesting. And they would, problems that can't be fixed. Mm like disabled children, don't belong in school. They belong in institutions. They're not educated. They're caged. So life is not a problem to be fixed. Mm. The human person is not a bunch of cells looking for some kind of perfection through scientific experimentation. So Dewey, and by extension the scientific method, cannot get you to the moral good of the human person because the human person is a unity of mind and body and soul. And I believe that every human person has an inherent dignity, whether they're disabled or unproductive or cannot participate in this scientific worldview that Dewey is talking about. They have a place in the, in the world because I affirm the goodness of God's creation and the dignity of the human person. And you simply can't get that. From Dewey, and you can't get that from Kant, I don't think. And those of you familiar with Princeton University may have heard of Peter Singer, mm. um, and he just outright claims that you know the concept of dignity is a Christian concept, and it doesn't really have a basis in public policy. Yeah, it's a bold claim, but it is a claim he makes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's internally consistent, I guess, which is what people appreciate about Peter Singer. It's internally consistent with his understanding right. of the human person, right. which is that kind of like Dewey, we are what we can reason and make. And if you can't reason and you can't make, then you don't have dignity. Well, yeah. you know, that's a scary thought. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to close us off here um, with so uh, the, webs the website of your conference, which looks amazing. Everyone listening should absolutely tune in. Um, so the website of your conference makes what I think is actually sort of an interesting and provocative claim uh, that I would love for you to comment on. Um, you say American culture is in rapid collapse in large part because of an abandonment of beauty in education and worship. And the word that I think is 
really interesting here is collapse, because that's a very strong word um, for something that a lot of people think is kind of, you know, the icing on the cake rather than, the, you know, the full body. Right. Um, mm. So I'm wondering if you could address that a little bit. What about our lack of beauty actually leads to a full blown collapse rather than sort of a lighter like lack of enrichment? Well, I think. As you put it, a lot of people think beauty is like the cupcake you have for dessert. And I'm actually positing the opposite. Yeah. And I say it in the book Yeah. many times in many different ways. Beauty is about things we do because they're intrinsically good. Yeah. And in my recent blogging and writing and my upcoming book, I draw a lot on the philosopher Joseph Pieper to make the argument that beauty and in the form of art music, worship, sculpture, is about perceiving things as good in and of themselves. And it's precisely that which is the contrast to the Dewey and tinkering mm. progressiveness, um, uh, progressive ideology, whereas the good is about things we can master and conquer and manipulate. Mm. And so in my ongoing work through Scala Foundation, through my blogging, which you can see online, through the webinars that I'm hosting, Yes, I am trying to persuade people that, as Pieper so brilliantly says, we shouldn't use as the measure of our time off from work the productivity we had at work because then our entire life revolves around what we do when we're not doing what really matters. And mm. what he says, and I agree with, is that what really matters to a human life is to know what do you think is intrinsically good and worthwhile? Mm. And that's what beauty tells us. That's what leisure and contemplation tells us. And what I firmly believe is that when we give the time out of our life to engage with beauty, to experience beauty, to create beauty, we go back to our servile work, which is extremely important. It's our vocation in the world to be a shoemaker, a teacher, a mother, a baker, a painter, we go back to our servile work with a sense that we are co-creating something good with God, but we do it with a contemplative outlook. And so beauty, the ex embodied experience of the good, leads us to a sense of awe and wonder, which then we take into our vocations in the world to co-create in love and not to destroy and to tear apart or to do something just for selfish, egotistical motives. Mm. Powerful note to end on. Thank you so much for your time, Margarita. This has been a super interesting conversation. I will include the registration link for your conference uh, as well as to your books in the show notes. Thank you. It was great to talk to you, Annika. Well, there you have it, Madisonians, Dr. Margarita Mooney-Clayton on beauty, what it is, what it's good for, is beauty truth? <laughs> I don't know if we exactly came up with an answer, but I hope you enjoyed. To find out more about Margarita, her book is linked in the show notes if you want to hear the full set of interviews on this topic, and also the link to her upcoming conference. Again, that's called Art, the Sacred, and the Common Good, and it's in April here in Princeton, New Jersey. If you want to find out more about the Madison program, as always, you can find us on Twitter, 
Instagram or our website, jmp.princeton.edu. We do tons of stuff beyond just the podcast, so would absolutely encourage you to go check it out. And as always, if you enjoyed this episode, we really appreciate any ratings or reviews on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, whatever it is you use. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll catch you next time here on Madison's Notes.